0: he gave the right to be- to become children of God, who were born not of flesh nor the will of uh, not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man but of God. Thank you guys well good morning, everyone two days till Christmas. Um, If we haven't met yet, my name is Ben, I'm the community pastor here and it's my privilege just to lead us through these next few moments of our service and it's wonderful to have you children among us as well today, uh, worshipping with us, celebrating with us and just hearing from you guys, reading as well, it's a real encouragement. I think it's so awesome to be part of a church that's got multiple generations and I think that's really God's blessing to us. We're in the middle of a series at the moment called Heaven on Earth, and we're looking at the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. And this is our second week. Tomorrow, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, John will take us through the last and final sermon in this little mini-series. Uh, but we'll be looking at the verses 6 to 13, which Aaron just read for us this morning. And as we begin, I'd like to take us through a few lines from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Now this has to be one of my all-time favorite books. Uh he uses it to engage with the ideas of the afterlife. He, He uses it to engage with ideas of heaven and hell and so forth. And he writes a fictional story about a man who's in a place called the Grey Town. And this man, he's taken up in this bus with some other people in it, with other residents from the city, and they fly up to this heavenly country, this radiant, bright place, and Basically, the book records his journey in that country all the way to the heavenly city. It's a really interesting read if you ever get time to do it. But I'll just read to you a small portion of the book where the main character, he finds himself on that bus, full of grey town residents. They're on their way to the heavenly country and this is what he says. Hours later, there came a change. It began to grow light in the bus. The greyness. Outside the windows turned from mud colour to mother of pearl, then to faintest blue, then to a bright blueness that stung the eyes. I glanced round the bus. The bus was full of light. It was cruel light. I shrank from the forces and from the faces and forms by which I was surrounded. Everyone, in one way or another, distorted and faded. One had a feeling that they might fall to pieces at any moment if the light grew much stronger. You see, the Greytown residents weren't used to this heavenly light. They didn't realise how grey their world was until they entered into the heavenly country. The Greytown's light was nothing but darkness and shadows compared to the true light of heaven. They become so used to the greyness that they hated the true light at first. It's like work, walking out of uh, the movies into a bright summer's day. It was cruel to their eyes. But as the book unfolds, one realises that the so-called cruel light is nothing less than the radiance of heaven. A place of beauty. A place of substance. A place that reveals Greytown to be only counterfeit and miserable. Now, the reason I share this with you is because our passage in John's gospel this morning is all about light. And many of us look to so many different lights in this world for hope, for life, for for meaning. Some of us, we look to the light of money as if that will be the thing that will give us hope and joy in this life. Others of us look to success as if we can rise up the ladder in our career and that will help us feel content as people. Others of us look to family to fill us and to give us meaning. There are so many different lights, some good, some bad. But what if these lights we look to and trust in are actually just greyness? What if we are settling for something lesser? For something dim, powerless? I mean, wouldn't that be a tragedy if the lights that we trusted in Turned out to be no real light at all. We'll have to wrestle with this claim this morning because we're going to be confronted today with the claim that Jesus is the true light. And next to him, all other lights are revealed to be only counterfeit and miserable, like Greytown. And if you sat in here this morning and, and you don't personally know Jesus... These next few minutes could be some of the most important moments of your life, not because the speaker is any good, but because the content of our passage makes the claim that only Jesus is the true light. And if that's true, it means that all the other so-called lights of this world, money, success, power, fame, are actually unreliable and undependable to give us what we need. If John 1 verses 6 to 13 are true, it means that there is only one true light, and his name is Jesus. And kids, I've been praying for you as well that that God helps you to see this and understand this. Because it's only in Jesus that we ultimately find joy and meaning and purpose in life. So the sooner you understand this for yourselves, the better. So I hope you'll be able to listen in to this as well. But with that said, let's look at what we can learn from the first section of what Aaron read for us a few moments ago. The first section is verses 6 to 8, and I'll read them for us again. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, if you're a note-taker... The first lesson that we're looking at is that we are not the light. In verses 6 to 8, we are not the light. So in verses 6 to 8, we're introduced to a witness, John the Baptist. And uh, this John, by the way, is a different John to the writer of the Gospel. So John's Gospel is written by the Apostle John, but we're introduced to John the Baptist. He's the witness. And the writer makes it clear that he came to bear witness about the light, Jesus He was simply a witness to it. He was not the light himself. He was just a witness. Now, you might be thinking, okay, you've just repeated what the verses said then. It's very simple. But when we think about how faithful John was, I think it's very interesting. He resisted the very subtle temptation to make himself out to be something more than he really was. Now, we might not be tempted to tell flat out lies to people, but many of us, Attempted to exaggerate just a little. You know, if you're talking to your buddy from Park Run, you're just tempted to say your Strava running time is a little bit faster than usual. There's a few running crazies that probably get that one. Or you're talking to a friend that you want to impress, and maybe your salary is a little bit higher, or another friend that you want to get pity from, so your salary is just a little lower than what you'd normally be. We're, we're quite good at exaggerating or just stretching things a little further. But I love how John just has this rock-solid integrity. In fact, there's this little story later on in the same chapter of John's Gospel where John is questioned, John the Baptist is questioned about his identity. And at every point, he resists the temptation to draw attention to himself. Let me read it for you. It's in verses 19 to 23. This is what it says. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And notice he doesn't even say who he is. He just says who he isn't. He confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. They just had to wring it out of him to get some kind of identity statement. He was a man of integrity. He was concerned with remaining simply a witness to the light. He didn't want to take the limelight onto himself at all. He said, no, I'm not Elijah as you expected. The Jews expected Elijah, this great prophet of old, to be resurrected and to come back. He said, I'm I'm not Elijah, as you think. I'm not the prophet that Moses promised would come. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. But if you have to hear something, I'm the one who prepares the way for the Messiah, for, for King Jesus to come along. That's who I am. I'm the one who shines a spotlight on him. And it's pretty amazing because later on, Jesus actually says that John was the greatest person who ever lived. Uh, in Luke 7 verse 28, Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So I think most of us were born of women here this morning, Right. We're grateful to our mums and and we're grateful for them for bringing us into this world. And and Luke says, Jesus says, sorry, that everyone who's born of women, so everyone, is less than John was. He was the greatest. But yet we don't read of John performing any miracles like other prophets. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Samuel prayed to to the Lord and, and God sent thunder and rain. And all we read about John is his witness to Jesus. And you see, this is actually where his greatness lay. The greatness, true greatness, is found in testifying to Jesus, in pointing people to Jesus. Jesus is the light. Nothing could be more important than pointing people to him. And John understood that. So the last thing he wanted to do was steal the spotlight from Jesus. He knew that he was not the light. So we learn two things from John. We learn about humility and integrity, and we learn about true greatness, the greatness of testifying to Jesus. And really, those two things flow out from one rock-solid truth, and that truth is that people need Jesus, not us. People need Jesus, not us. If we just shift the focus to ourselves a little, we are doing people a terrible disservice. If I can just talk to the members here at BPCC for a moment, and those who serve here at BPCC, we need we need to remember this when we're serving. When we're serving, whether it's behind the scenes or on the platform, that it, we're all about Jesus. We just want people to see him. That's why we serve. We want the spotlight to shine on him, never on ourselves. To, to try and grab attention for ourselves is to do people a disservice because we're pointing them away from the cure that they need. People need Jesus, not us. Because the truth is we are not the light. Jesus is. That's our first point. The second point, if you're taking notes, is in verses 9 to 11. And it is, we either don't recognize the light or we don't like the light. We either don't recognize the light or we don't like the light. Verses 9 to 11. I'll read them for us again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, I find these verses terribly sad. The world was created through Jesus, yet we did not even recognize him when he came. We didn't know him. Our creator came in the flesh, and and we were blind to him. In fact, it says that his own people, and at that time it was the Jewish people, did not even receive him. They didn't want him. And I think this simply illustrates the fact that Jesus came in a way that human wisdom and man-made religion did not expect. Neither wisdom nor religion would have predicted that the Creator would would subject himself to poverty, shame, and mistreatment. I mean, it's an upside down way for the King of the universe to come into our world and, and to bring his rescue plan. Last week we were reminded by John that Jesus isn't a Christmas edition, although he is often treated that way. This time of year we, we see nativity scenes around usually and we often see a, a baby Jesus lying there with a holy light sometimes surrounding him and he's sleeping serenely. It's a beautiful picture, but it's not the picture that the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us a picture of Jesus that would have shocked the religious mind. He was born to a very poor family, a family of no significance at all. His dad couldn't even get a place in the local motel when he visited his hometown. So they were forced to sleep outside in the doghouse, we might say, outside with the animals. And the manger wouldn't have been this pristine thing crafted out of Tasmanian oak. Rather, we should be thinking of something more like this. Something far more dirty and and unclean. Something more filthy. It's a shocking picture for the religious mind. A, A Jewish person reading this would have thought this was absurd. Because we're talking about the God child. We're talking about God in the flesh choosing to come into the world in this way. To be born and to be placed in an animal's feeding trough. Now, I don't think any bacterial soap existed back then. So, for hygiene freaks like me, that's kind of scary. Why would God willingly choose to enter our world in this way? Man made religion would have thought of a far more dignified and respectable entrance for such a person. He didn't take the dignified, respectable path of human religion. God's ways often deviate from the ideals and values that we project onto him. And so perhaps many of us would not even recognize Jesus if he were to come today. And even if we did recognize him, perhaps we would not want to receive him because we don't like the type of road he travels. We don't like the fact that he ultimately won his victory through shameful crucifixion. We prefer a different kind of wisdom, a different kind of strategy for success. Human wisdom never would have thought, never would have imagined that suffering and degradation was the path to victory. Why can't we create success through military power or through technological advancement? That would be far less costly than the cross, wouldn't it? Yet God won the battle against sin and evil in a way that human religion and human wisdom would never have imagined. He didn't take the dignified, respectable path of human religion. Neither did he take the triumphalist, grandiose path of human power and wisdom. No, God's path of success started in a dirty manger with a poor, nobody family. And this path led Jesus to not just death, but crucifixion. That's significant. God did not design a dignified death for himself, but subjected himself to death even on a cross. Now, let's take a moment to consider what crucifixion actually meant back then. In the Roman world, this type of death was reserved for slaves. You hardly hear the aristocracy, the the elite, talking about it in their writings because it was so shameful, even though thousands and thousands were subjected to it. This death was designed to maximise shame and degradation of the human being. And it's hard for us to grasp this because the cross has become a religious symbol in our day. It's been sanitized in our minds. But when we think about it, the cross is one of the most irreligious objects on the planet. What I mean is that it's all about humiliation, shame, torment. And this is why Kenneth Leach makes these remarks about the cross. He says, in order to speak of the crucified God, we need a theology. We need a a thinking of abandonment of dereliction, of an alienation so profound that it can only be expressed in language marked by paradox and by great daring and risk. The crucifixion of the Son of God by one of the most advanced civilizations in the ancient world does not seem to be an acceptable or reasonable method of redeeming the world. There is something so outrageous and obscene about it that the agony in Gethsemane becomes the only comprehensible part of the whole saga. It's odd. It's different. It's not what we would have expected. And the reason Jesus did this for us, the reason our loving God subjected himself to human violence and evil, more than that, to the evil spiritual powers that be, was because he, in his loving heart, decided to be our substitute. Do you see the link there? The reason he entered into such great accursedness was because he wanted to take our great accursedness. He wanted to take on our shame and face our darkness head on. He decided to right our wrongs, not by wiping us out, not by punishing us, but by taking our wrongs upon himself, by entering into our accursedness, by taking a penalty that was not his own. And this is where the Christmas story should lead us. It's far more absurd and unexpected than we may have ever realised. And perhaps this is the reason that the world did not recognise Jesus. And his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. We either don't recognise the light or we don't like the light. We don't recognise the God, man, because he chose a path far different from our worldly paths of success. He was born in poverty and obscurity. Others of us don't receive Jesus because we want a religion that's clean and sanitized. We want a religion that's dignified. We want a path to God that doesn't involve the cross, that doesn't include suffering and shame. We either don't recognize the light or we don't like the light. That's point two. Point three in verses 12 to 13 is that those who do recognize, those who do recognize and receive the light, are given the right to become children of God. John 1, verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, verse 13 makes a lot more sense now that we've spoken about the strange way By which Jesus came. Because nothing short of a miracle is needed for someone to believe, at least back then especially, that Jesus was God. Fleming Rutledge will will help you understand what I mean. She says, The disciples could not have seen as humiliating and inglorious death as obedience to God or a heroic martyrdom. On the contrary, precisely because it was a crucifixion. They could have seen it only as the utter discrediting of his claims before man and God. He had been judged a threat to the state by the secular authorities, but far worse than the disciples' eyes, he had been condemned by the religious authorities, the guardians of faith and morals, as a blasphemer deserving of a godless death. And to think that the disciples would turn around from that and say, yeah, no, I still think he's the son of God, is absurd. Nothing short of a miracle would be needed for them to reach that conclusion. And of course, the resurrection was part of that miracle. But my point is that this is why John says that believers, that the children of God are born not of blood, not because of Jewish ethnic heritage, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be a believer is to be a miracle of God. We don't become God's children through ethnic heritage, as if having Jewish blood or a Christian family line is what ensures we're a child of God. Neither do we become children of God simply by our own will and decision. We become children of God by the miracle of God's grace, by God opening our eyes to see that Jesus, this child who was born in obscurity, in a manger, is the true light of the world, the light that breaks through our darkness. So I've been praying for all of you as we've led up to this, whether you're a regular or you've been dragged along here this morning, I've been praying that God would do a miraculous work in your life and in my life today, that he would open our eyes, give us ears, give us a heart to see, to understand who Jesus was and to receive him. Perhaps to some of us, it may be the very first time this morning that we do that. Now, apart from the work of God in our lives, we're like the people of Greytown. We're used to the grayness. We think that the lights in Greytown can help us and fulfill us. But when they come in contact with the light of Jesus, they're revealed to be only dim and gray. Jesus is the true light. His light may be cruel to our eyes at first. But the longer we stare, the more our eyes will adjust and see that he is the answer, that he is what we need. And that's what the Christmas season is all about. It's all about meditating and reflecting on the unexpected God child, Jesus Christ. He's the reason for this season. And God's promise for those who do recognize and accept Jesus is that they would have the right, the authority to become his child. Notice that John doesn't write that we need to do good things or clean ourselves up. No, the call is for us to simply recognize Jesus as God and receive him as our God. And if you do, he would love to adopt you. He would love to accept you into his family. He would love to take your darkness and give you his light. That's why he subjected himself to such cruelty was because ultimately our problem and the evil powers that be is terrible, is dark. So he faced that head on. So if we put our faith and our trust in him, he could give us life and light and hope and adopt us as his children into his forever family. And he's holding that invitation out to everyone in this room this morning. So the question is, will you reject him or will you... Receive him, let's bow our heads and pray together Jesus. It can be hard to stare at your light sometimes. It can be hard to to face the darkness that you went through, the shame, the obscurity. And Lord, we realize that although we're victims to the evil powers, we're also played a part in that darkness. We all sit here this morning broken. None of us are without sin. And Lord, we thank you that you came as our solution, that from the very beginning you embraced our pain, our darkness, to give us light. Lord, we thank you that the darkness could not defeat you. You rose again in victory. You broke through it. You're the first fruits of God's plan for this world and you offer life and healing to all of us who would put our faith and our trust in you. Lord, help us to be like Paul who said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of saying that this crucified Messiah is my God and my King. Lord, I just want to hand over these brothers and sisters to you this morning. I just want to give each one of us a moment to reflect, to just think about your invitation. I'm just going to give you all a moment to do that in silence and with our heads bowed, just to reflect on the invitation that God has given to you in Jesus' Will you receive him? Will you identify yourself with him? Say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Lord Jesus, just commit everyone, all of us, to you today. Please reveal yourself to us. We receive your free offer of grace and mercy and love and light and healing. And Lord, we thank you that you have the victory, that you won the triumph. And we worship you for that this Christmas, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand with us? We're going to respond and sing. And I'm just going to... Declare the lyrics of this next song we're about to sing. Born unto us this day a saviour, gifted from heaven to a manger, the hope of the world, a light for all mankind, all of the earth rejoice, it's Christmas time.